Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. I hope you all are staying safe during this time. This month's episode consists of a great interview with Dr. Serena Hu. Dr. Serena Hu is chair of the Division of Spine Surgery, as well as a professor within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is also the second president-elect of the American Orthopedic Association. I wanted to interview Dr. Hu not only to understand her passion for spine surgery, but also understand how she became such a prolific researcher. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Hu, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Serena Hu. Dr. Serena Hu, thank you so much for joining me on the She Can Fix It podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, and I'm so excited to finally meet you and speak with you. So I guess my first question for you is if you can, in your own words, describe your background, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, as well as your post-fellowship years. Okay, sure. Well, I'll start. Actually, I went to college at Cornell, um, and that's relevant because there were a lot of Canadian hockey players, which is how I went to McGill and Montreal for medical school, because they talked about Montreal and McGill. And then I did my residency at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And then I went from there to a spine and scoliosis fellowship at Rancho Los Amigos in LA. And then my first job out of fellowship was actually in Minnesota at the Twin City Scoliosis Center. And then my um, mentor there uh, took a job as chairman at uh, UCSF. And then I followed him there to UCSF. And I spent 22 years at UCSF. And then about six and a half years ago, I moved from UCSF to Stanford. So you've gone all over the country. Yes, I have. Are there certain things from each of the places that you found to be different in terms of the way that they did things? And did you try to bring your own style to each new place that you went to? Or did you find yourself kind of conforming to kind of the style of each new location that you went to? Well, in your training years, you really don't have a lot of options from the standpoint of, you know, kind of in, 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 in uh, imposing your style, as I'm sure you've learned, you got to do what you got to do. Um, but I, I think, but you know, you're learning. So you want to be learning from the people that you're training with. In Minnesota was my first job. It was a very well-established scoliosis center. So it was very easy for me to just kind of, I'm, it's my first job out of fellowship. It was easy for me to kind of just say, okay, well, this is how they've been doing this at this famous place. I should learn how they do it. And then, um, but then when we went to, to uh, San Francisco, it was basically essentially building a department. So went from a really, really small, very community-based department to a very, you know, a really well-known, very prominent department. And so in some ways, you know, my chairman, who was my mentor, um, kind of grew it in the way he wanted to from an educational academic standpoint. And I was there sort of, you know, helping him do that. So I was chief of spine by the time I left UCSF, and then I moved, made a lateral move to Stanford. But it's one thing to come in as a chief of, of spine. It's a different thing to kind of grow up and become one in the place that your mentor has been. So it's kind of like being a grown-up and never having been the kid there. I'd like to transition to your subspecialty of spine surgery. Spine surgery is a very unique field within orthopedic surgery. So I was hoping you can talk to us about how you initially became passionate about spine surgery? Well, actually, so I started off 
really liking scoliosis surgery, pediatric scoliosis surgery, um, because I really liked working with kids. I really liked, um, you know, the fact that you could take a spine that was curved and make it straighter with the instrumentation and, you know, change that deformity. I liked the patient population. And I ended up deciding to do spine as opposed to pediatric orthopedics because that's the part of the pediatric orthopedics that I like the most. And I ended up liking the adults too, as opposed to just the pediatric stuff. Um, And it was also kind of a field that I liked, but didn't have a lot of exposure to. So when I trained, there were more people that did general orthopedics. And I thought I would do sports medicine, total joints and spine. And when I started, I I actually did do that for a few years. Um, But nowadays, obviously, you have to kind of, especially in a university or a big city, you have to have, you know, subspecialized. So I started out training in spine because it was the thing I wanted to do that I wasn't as comfortable doing as I was, say, total joints or sports. Wow, that's that's amazing. And I think that's, for me, what's so interesting is like right now as a PGY2, I find spine to be a very, very, like almost a scary thing in the sense that you're working so closely with the spinal cord and the nerve roots. And so what are your words of wisdom to those surgeons in training who look at spine surgery with trepidation and fear? Well, it's really about training and control. So, you know, you obviously, um, you don't start out by doing you know, a big operation, you start out by just learning how to expose the spine. And part of that and being safe is understanding the anatomy. I mean, obviously, everywhere in just any surgical field, you have to know the anatomy. But obviously, in the spine, and when there's parts of the anatomy that are so potentially dangerous versus safe areas, you really have to understand the anatomy and the three-dimensional anatomy more, more deeply than, you know, not to trivialize the tibia, but the tibia is the tibia. You can find it, you can feel it, you know, you know where the nerves are, but if the, the tibia is right under the skin and, you know, so it's, it's a lot easier to kind of know where you are and um, the anatomy is more straightforward. It's more triangular. You kind of know where the nerves are going to be. The spine, you know, once you know it, it's no, it's easier to know where the anatomy is, but until you, it, it's much more like where the nerves travel within say a vertebral segment. You know, you have to kind of know where this, the, the, the fecal sac is versus the nerve roots versus the aorta. So understanding that three-dimensional anatomy is really the way to do it safely. And that just takes study and practice. Another myth about spine surgery is that the stakes are high in every case. Would you agree with this assessment that there is more pressure, so to speak, in spine surgery? And if so, how have you dealt with this pressure? I think that's... True. Although if you do a knee or a hip surgery wrong and you end up with losing a limb, that's just as high a stake as if you accidentally paralyze somebody. So certainly you could say that there are definitely um, parallels among all the different subspecialties. I guess it's probably, I don't want to say more common, but I guess because of the nature of what we do when you have a somebody who has a spine trauma or a tumor, you're more often dealing with a situation where paralysis is closer or more at risk than, say, a routine hip replacement. Um, but certainly revision hip replacements, you know, or, you know, complex, those kind of things. I mean, they're certainly high risk. Um, that being said, I mean, yes, I think there is probably potentially more stress or more pressure in spine surgery because you're always in that area. 
dinging the sciatic nerve is not good, but dinging the spinal cord is really bad. So I think I, I, you deal with it, I think, by, you know, graduated responsibility, learning the anatomy, and knowing when to stop and not go too far. And, you know, it's not always about the home run. It's, a lot of times it's about the safest choice. Very cool. I, I really do appreciate your honesty with that because I think it's something that, you know, there are future future spine surgeons in medical school and in residency. So I think just letting folks know that spine surgery is something that is tangible for them and something that they can do, I think is really important. Um, I do want to transition and talk about your research. Um, you are a prolific researcher, and I just wanted to first talk about when you first became interested in spine research. Well, I think a lot of it just, I actually, my, my residency, as I kind of alluded to, at the time that I was there, there wasn't a lot of spine research being done. Um, I think spine is a, I don't want to say it's a new field, but the complexity of it and the research done in it is, is a lot, is not as um, well established as some of the areas within like knees or hips or trauma, for example. And um, so I really wasn't exposed to spine research until I was a fellow which kind of makes sense. And then I was at Rancho Los Amigos and that had a lot of spinal cord injury patients. And there were a couple of people that I worked with who were very, very into research. And so having a chance to work with people that had great ideas, knew how to write a paper and get the paper published was really key because just writing a paper is, it's not the same thing as like writing a short story, obviously. It's not the same thing as writing a case report. You know, it looks like you know from the way you're nodding like knowing how to go about writing the paper and putting together things, you know, it's, it's not necessarily intuitive. So having kind of the right mentors to help me learn how to do that really was key. And I've always liked writing, although obviously writing scientific articles isn't the same thing as writing a short story. Um, it, it still was something that I enjoyed doing and editing and kind of getting from trying to distill what I was trying to say into a way that the reader could understand and, you know, could argue for that having value to be published, for example. Very cool. How has your research changed and evolved over the years? Well, I, I started with fairly simple questions, um, like, you know, a few biomechanics studies, you know, like testing, is this strong enough to do this? Or, you know, like one of the early studies was um, putting augmenting a screw in the spine with a special kind of um, absorb of hydroxyapatite and was that stronger and could it be used and um, you know it's a very simple biomechanics study um, I've done a lot of kind of clinical research and that's just sort of when you're seeing patients you know how can I how common is this problem that I'm seeing or could I do it better and if I review my you know last 20 or 50 cases is there something that works better? in this particular situation, or can I compare it to how somebody else does it or how it's done in the past? So a lot of it's just kind of questions that arise as you are working and seeing the patients. Um, and so that's kind of evolved. I think there's been a big uptick in using databases to do research, which we've been able to do. Um, you know, obviously it doesn't take the place of a randomized control study, but it's getting harder and harder to do those. Um, but you also have to, you know, understand the limits of database studies too. So it's balancing that and kind of having clinical research, which is immediately relevant and is a lot more granular and a lot more real data 
and administrative data is obviously abstracted and from really large databases. So it's very powerful, but you have to be careful on what, you know, you know, the expression garbage in, garbage out. So it's only as good as the data that goes, gets put in. So you have to be careful about the conclusions you make. Um, but it is getting easier to do that. And so that's been, um, um, you know, something that's evolved over the years. And, but I'm still, I still do a lot of clinical research just because obviously with the busy clinical practice, you're always asking questions like, well, what about this? And what about that? And, you know, how, are these patients doing well if I did this or are they not? And just trying to kind of, you know, analyze and kind of be critical of what you're doing to make sure that we're actually helping patients. That's amazing. I was, uh, if you wouldn't mind, can you share some of your current research interests and are there any projects that you're very excited to, that you just finished up or that you're just currently starting? Sure. So um, we have a lot of interest in uh, resource utilization. And so patients who, um, um, everything, well, there's like a couple, two different projects that are related. One project is looking at um, resource utilization before people have a spine surgery. And we've noticed that some people are very high utilizers. And not surprisingly, in the months before they need a spine surgery, they're taking more medication, they're using more physical therapy, they're going to the doctor more. And so it kind of makes sense that that kind of escalates. But it's interesting watching the patterns of how that kind of decreases over after surgery. And some people basically continue to be really high utilizers and some you, you fix their problem and they are, go back to like using hardly any. So it's, we've been trying to look at that pattern. That's a, that's a database, administrative database study. And then we're also looking at um, uh, use of opioids in a similar sort of pattern. And another study we're do doing is actually a prospective study looking at the use of opioids and um, whether or not weaning that opioid use um, before surgery can help with outcomes for those patients. Oh, that's fantastic. Um... What is your advice for surgeons in training when they are pursuing research in residency and beyond? I think start with having a good mentor. You know, somebody, it doesn't have to, it, it doesn't matter what your subspecialty is or what your, you know, what the subspecialty you might be interested in. Find somebody who has, is a successful researcher that you would like to work with, you know, because the way you do research, it's, you, you can ask different questions, but the quality, doing quality research is kind of the same across the different subspecialties, okay? And so if you learn how to, from somebody who's learned how to get things published, learned how to ask good clinical questions, learned how to do appropriate statistical analysis and respond to reviewers, you know, science, that that's, sets a great foundation from the standpoint of having successful research. And if you don't set up a good hypothesis and a good study design, the likelihood of being able to actually publish a paper is less, so you, you spend a lot of time doing the, doing the project but if you can't get it finished in a way that your, your reviewers want to see, the, see is valid, then you've spent a lot of energy doing, you know, and you end up with a lesser journal or not answering questions that you really want to answer. Um, so, um, so spending time learning about how to do good research is really important. And then it's about posing the questions. And the more experienced you are, the, obviously, the, the better the questions are. Um, but also looking at the literature because it's amazing how many things have already been done. And um, some of it can be, you know, the way we did research 20 years ago isn't as good as a lot of the research we do now, but some of it was better too. So, you know, knowing, knowing the literature before starting on a project is really key. And um, so those are probably the two most important things um, I would say. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's just very helpful for us residents just to kind of think about, because I think we just place so much of an emphasis on getting 
as many publications as we can on our CVs and such. And so I think it's just great to know that it's, you know, the quality of what we do actually does matter. It does. It absolutely does. I do want to take a turn and talk about your leadership roles. You have had active roles in numerous societies, including the American Orthopedic Association, the Scoliosis Research Society, and the International Society of the Study of the Lumbar Spine. And my question to you is, why was it important for you to hold all of these leadership positions in these various societies? That's a really good question because it didn't start out as me, it being important, but it, it was starting out with me being asked to do things. And I think what happens is, you know, you, you don't you don't learn to say no until it's too late. And so you're, you end up saying yes to everything that sounds interesting. And then you discover that actually it's kind of fun to do these things. It's good to have a say in like the program of a certain society or the direction of how things go. And then once you do it a little bit, they start saying, oh, are you interested in leadership? And you're like, oh, that sounds like fun, you know, whatever. And and then you start and, and leadership, you know, nowadays is much more kind of recognized as something that's legitimate as opposed to and, and has certain skill sets as opposed to just being a really good surgeon. And then you become the leader of whatever group. Like in the olden days, the best surgeon became the chairman. But the best surgeon may not be the best chairman, right? You know, they might be really good at surgery, but they might not be very good at administration. And the same thing happens within societies. So... I think learning, you know, what you're good at and learning that I actually, hopefully I'm still a good surgeon, but learning that I could do administrative work and lead things. And a lot of that is just learning how to communicate properly and, and effectively. And I found that I was, um, I think, pretty good at communicating. And, and so hopefully that's why I've been selected to do those things. And it is important to do it, I think, because you want to have people that are good and care about the societies and care about the departments. And, you know, it's much better for people to, who are doing it for the good of the, the group rather than doing it for just their own egos. And so, you know, that's, I think that's one of the reasons that I've ended up doing, being involved in a lot of leadership. Do you think that there is a underrepresentation of women in leadership positions? If so, why do you think this exists? Well, the first problem is obviously there's very few women in orthopedics, right? I mean, I don't know what we were up to. Are we up to 10 or 12% or something now? It's, it's, it was like six or three when I was going through. So it's, it's kind of like chairman of the board of, you know, Fortune 500 co- companies. You've got to feed the, 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 um, the pipeline. And so you've got to get more women into orthopedics. Um, but it's also, you know, just like in the Fortune 500, you know, people appoint people that look like themselves and think like themselves. So it's part of like breaking that glass ceiling. Um, and I think number one, you know, so we, um, with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, you probably know is the first is the largest orthopedic group in the country. And we now have a woman president, the first woman president we have, Christy Weber. Okay. And then the American Orthopedic Association is kind of the, um, the academic orthopedic association, and it's actually the oldest orthopedic association. And I'll be president of the AOA in two years, and I'll be the first woman president of the AOA. Oh my so, God, congratulations. Well, thank you. I wasn't doing it for, to, for kudos, but more to say like, but once you, once, you, once you kind of break the barrier, it's like, okay, now it's happened. Now, why hasn't this happened sooner? And it kind of opens the door, you know? And I think having, there are definitely, I mean, I can name, you know, two or three women in leadership positions in the AOA that could very well, you know, be the second, third and fourth woman. And it's, it, it shouldn't be a big deal. It should be just part of the best person getting the job, 
you know, and that's part of breaking those barriers. And the good news is, is that I think, you know, I think most orthopedic surgeons in my age range understand that. I mean, there's still some old guys who think that women shouldn't be orthopedic surgeons, but, you know, they're kind of retired by now. So <laughs> that's no, that's, that's it's true. I think that there's um, a lot of I think that there's room to grow. And I think that there's a lot of great women coming through the ranks. And so I guess, speaking of those women, what advice do you have for those who are interested in committing to leadership positions in various orthopedic societies? Well, um, you start at the bottom like everybody else does. You volunteer for committees and you do a good job in the committees. And then you hopefully get nominated to run the committee chair. Or, I mean, different different societies have different structures from the standpoint of committee chair. Like the SRS has a council chair that kind of has uh, several committees within each council. So being a council chair is important in the SRS. Um, but the AOA doesn't, for example. So you have to kind of understand the... Um, the structure of any um, group that you're, you belong to, whether it be the societies or your department, um, and understand, you know, how one gets chosen for those, volunteer when it's appropriate, and talk to people about your interest. You know, a lot of times people, like, don't, don't think of certain people because they're more quiet, like an, like an introvert may not get, get offered certain leadership positions, but introverts are just as good, if not better, leaders you know, but they might not be out there screaming at people. So, you know, if it takes volunteering, then sometimes, you know, that that's like, oh, you want to do that? Great. Let's have you do that. Or, you know, you actually need to do X and Y and Z and prove that you're, you can do that first. But, you know, the only way to find that out is by volunteering and, you know, seeing if, if, you know, if that's an appropriate thing for you to be um, asked to do. Now, there are definitely times where you might offer volunteer and you think you'd be very good at it and somebody disagrees and there is sometimes ageism and sexism involved with that. So I think it's important to kind of clarify why you might not be ready for that job yet and um, you know, make sure that it's something that um, people recognize you for your skills as opposed to your you know, being just at a residency or you know, there's never been a woman doing that before or something like that. But you have to be careful because you don't want to be, I don't think running around kind of claiming sexism is a good way to, you know, get get jobs. <laughs> I completely agree with you. It's nice to know that for all of these inspirational women and all of the achievements that they've had as clinicians and researchers and leaders, that it's all something that took time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I think... I think I've actually been lucky because um, I came into orthopedics at a time where people were looking for women to promote, to, to get to leadership positions. So in some ways, I feel like I've been favored, if that makes any sense. You know, I don't, th I think I deserved it. But I think if you're going to, if you have five men and one woman that you can choose and you're looking for diversity, then I'm more likely to get picked because I'm different, you know? Mm -hmm. If you're one of those five men, you might be just as qualified as me, you know, but, you know, it's like, oh, we, we want somebody, you know, more that's diverse. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, I've been lucky timing wise to come into orthopedics at that time. Have you faced any backlash because of that? I don't think so. I, well, I, I think I think there are probably just as many, if not more times that I'm overlooked because I'm a woman. So I think in the end, it probably comes out about even, you know, and there are probably times that I don't even notice it because, um, because I don't 
I mean, I didn't come into orthopedics to be a president of a society or something like that. I came in it because I wanted to do surgery. Okay. So, um, and there are some people that come into orthopedics wanting to be the president of this or a chairman or whatever. And so I think they are much more likely to kind of push hard to get to where they want to. Whereas I kind of discovered later on that I had some leadership skills. So, you know, there might be times that I might've been passed over, not even realizing that somebody else might've, you know, been promoted if they'd been jumping up and down more, you know? So I think, but I, but I think overall it's been pretty much fair. Like I said, there might be some times that I got passed over because of my youth or because of my sex, but just probably just as many times I've been kind of at an advantage because of that. Mm, that's so true. Thank you so much for sharing that. As you are a professor within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Stanford, I would like to hear your thoughts about resident teaching and what you think are the attributes that make a great teacher. Being able to convey information in an interesting way um, and a relevant way to your, your, I guess for lack of a better term, student is really important. I mean, there's, um, I mean, if I just lecture at you, you know, you'll fall asleep or you'll try not to fall asleep, but you'll want to fall asleep because it kind of gets dull after all. You could read a book, right? You know, but, you know, being able to um, make, I like be, I, I think it's nice if you can make people think through a problem and they learn from thinking through the problem as opposed to just being told what the pro- how to solve the problem. Like, how would you solve the problem? You know, or how would you figure out, you know, why is this anatomy, this kind of thing? So I think engaging your student in a way that makes them um, more involved in the, in the learning as opposed to just lecturing at them, I think is more effective and they're, they're more likely to remember more. And there's different ways to do that, obviously. But I think um, the more they're involved in the learning process and the, um, the um, gaining of that knowledge, I think it's more likely that they'll remember it in a relevant way. Awesome. I do want to talk about the future. And you mentioned that you are a future president of the AOA. So I'm very congratulations on that. Um, But I was hoping you could also talk about any future goals or projects that you have for yourself clinically in research and just with your work for other organizations. I've actually um, trying to to get more research dollars to our spine division to um, get more clinical research and hopefully lab research. There's a surprising paucity of lab space at Stanford, which I never understood until I asked my chair. I thought, this all this is a huge campus, um, but they can't build very tall, apparently, which I never thought about. So when I was at UCSF, you, could, you couldn't build that tall because you have earthquakes and stuff like that, but you could still build pretty high. And at Stanford, they can't build a, a, above a certain height. So it's so you have a lot of like low buildings. And so that obviously it changes how much lab space you have. So, you know, I'd like to have more involvement of our spine division in, um, in the lab and getting more research out and hiring a clinician scientist that can help us do that. And so, um, so that, that's probably the, the, next, the next goal. Awesome, fantastic. And I know that um, Dr. Hu, I know that you're very busy um, and you, I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. So I would like to go into my final five questions that I have for you, um, which I ask every guest that I have on the She Can Fix It podcast. Okay. What is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So I thought a long time for this, and I actually have two favorite procedures, and I'll tell you why. The first favorite procedure is actually one of the most common surgeries we do in spine, which is a herniated disc. And so it's a pretty small operation and you go in there and this piece of 
disc that looks like crab meat squirts out, you grab it, and the patient wakes up and their leg pain is better. It may not be totally gone, but it's, it's just like this very gratifying operation, and it's very common, and it is high yield from the standpoint, and most people feel better pretty quickly. So that's my first, oper- first favorite operation. My other favorite operation is the other extreme, which is something called the pedicle subtraction osteotomy, where you basically take a segment of the spine out in a wedge shape. Sometimes it's a, whole, sometimes it's a vertebral column resection, but the, the one we do more, more commonly is just a wedge out of the back of the spine. And um, have you done osteotomies yet? I've done some Scoli cases with uh, one of our new attendings here, Dr. Tuasen. Okay, yeah. So I don't know if you've seen a PSO yet. No, not yet. So, but it's basically a closing wedge osteotomy with the cauda equina in the middle of it. You basically take out the pedicles and you take a wedge out of the vertebral bodies and part of the lamina. And then you take, sometimes they do it manually, but oftentimes with the table. And then you extend the table and the patient gets correction of their kyphosis or, you know, more lordosis, whatever you need. And it's pretty transformative. It's also very high risk. The reason... I like the other operation also is because it takes a long time to recover from a PSO because it's, you know, it's usually a revision surgery. Their patients are in a lot of pain afterwards. There's a complication rate. So it takes a lot longer for them to know that they're improved. But I saw a guy today that I, that, um, you know, was just so miserable before his surgery and he's six weeks post-op and he is, you know, three inches taller, grinning from ear to ear, just happy as a clam and doing a lot better. So kind of the two extremes of what I do. Wow, that's fantastic. I, yes, I, I think that's great that you kind of have, I support the two favorites idea. I think that that's fantastic. Um, what are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations? My kind of current go-to topic, because it kind of evolves with time, is what I call the the uh, spine mode is connected to the hip bone. And it's about sagittal balance. Do you know about that yet? Yes. Yes. So it's kind of my talk that talks about how, um, why I first realized how important it was the patients that I fused that their x-rays look great, but in retrospect, I flexed them, I, I fused them flat and they did okay, but then later on had problems. And then when I did their PSO or corrected them, you know, they were just doing a lot better. So I show a lot of examples of that and kind of the evolution of how we kind of came to the understanding of sagittal balance. And I, throwing some hip stuff for the non-spine surgeons and, you know, and that's kind of, uh, so it, it gets people thinking and talking and I, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. Oh, getting everybody involved. That's awesome. Exactly. Um, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? That was a hard one. I mean, there are, there are just so many things. I mean, they're, they're, you know, just, just this patient today that was so miserable before the surgery, he cried when I first told him I would do surgery on him because people had kind of ignored him, you know, for ages and told him there was nothing that could be done, you know. So everything from, you know, just having a patient that you're able to help a lot when they've given up to the times where um, very, oh, oh, you'll like this one. So the, the times when I have to, when you, when the, I have to cut a, cut a rod for a scoliosis case. And um, what's sometimes funny, and the residents laugh at me, I'll, I'll ha- ask the medical student to cut it, and they'll have a hard time cutting the rod. And then my favorite thing to do is to say, do you want me to help you with that? Oh, my word. The, the, the medical student looks at me, because they're usually twice my size. And, um, but the residents all figured out I was going to do this. So they started telling the medical students that I was going to do this. But it's kind of fun to do that. So. Oh, that, that's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. 
My next question for you are, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? So I like to do a lot of sports. Um, I'm a lousy skier, but I like to ski. I'm a lousy golfer and I like to play golf. I'm a very slow biker, runner, swimmer, but I like to do all those things. I like to read. I've got two kids and a husband who are great. My kids are both at school, but um, you know when they when they come home for school from school, it's it's always fun to hang out with them. Um, so those are probably the main things. Oh, that's awesome. My last question for you, Doctor Who, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? I think it's a great profession that we're in. We get to really change the quality of life of our patients. Um, I think it really we really have to be responsible because the patients trust us with that. And I think, um, you know, giving them a realistic expectations and being honest with them about expectations and goals. I mean, especially that's a particularly important in spine surgery, um, but I think it's important in everything we do. Um, and I think as long as we keep the keep the best the uh, patient in mind as our kind of guiding goal as far as what we're there for. Um, I think you just we'll just do the right thing. But it's really important um, to keep that in mind. And I think we're really lucky to do what we, we get to do as part of um, our jobs, basically. It's, it's, really, it's really fortunate we get to do this. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Who. I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, and I am just so excited for everything that you're going to achieve in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Serena Who. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. We are on Twitter and Instagram at SheCanFixItPod. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanniekirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>